0: Well, friends, and welcome to But I Digest. My name is Hans Rufert. And I'm Steve McDonough. On every episode of the podcast, we dive into a specific food or ingredient, harvesting the fruits of its history, peeling back its aromatic skin to discover its heroes, and squeezing out the acidic juice of its hoopla. And today's food is oranges. And normally I like to do a good food pun right here, but I can't really think of a good orange. Food pun. Orange, you glad I couldn't think of a good uh, food pun? That's probably about as, uh,
1: as. I'm 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 not feeling any pain. You can do whatever <laughs> you want because I've got myself a very nice uh, orange based cocktail. Because we never Ooh. get a chance to do this in the evening. We usually oh, record right. in the afternoons, and um, I thought that I would make myself something a little orangey. And there is a uh, I've made I made a version of a White Lady, which is an old cocktail. It's uh, gin and quantro and lemon. You know, Quantro being an orange liqueur, yep. but I'm using the um, Seville Orange Tanqueray Ooh. gin, which is delicious. I don't like, as I've said a million times, flavored right. spirits. This is so good, and uh, and it's kind of fun. I kind of maybe should have added maybe a touch of simple syrup, just sweeten it up a little more. But, um, but yeah, so I'm having a cocktail, so, you know, do your worst.
0: Well, is is this your recipe? Is this the one that you're going to talk about later?
1: No, I mean I would have just spoiled the whole thing. We might as well do well, no, the podcast I... now. I've got another recipe. Well,
0: I? good, good, because I was going to say I uh, I am also having a cocktail, but mine is actually not really a cocktail. It's just a German brandy called Osbach Uralt. Uh, and you're right, we rarely do this in the evening, so I feel like it's okay for me to drink in podcast. Absolutely.
1: Uh, so... And what is orangey about the Osbach Uralt? Uh,
0: absolutely not. Nothing. Okay, so. Uh...
1: Just uh, it, just, uh, it just it just kind of
0: loosens my mental uh, gets my citrus flow in here. So yeah. so let's let's talk about uh, the orange. Now, the fruit that we know as an orange um, really doesn't exist in nature. Right. So it is it's sort of a hybrid. And but we think that this fruit originated about 2300 years ago in Southeast Asia. Um, and so the researchers kind of suggest that it's a cross between a pomelo and a mandarin. Uh, so, it's a, it's kind of a, a Frankenstein's monster sort of a thing, but it's a great monster. Uh, an orange. which? Are
1: you talking about a navel orange? I'm or? talking
0: about oranges in general. Sort of, sort of Of course, now we'll get, to, I'm going to go a little a little farther, but the, the sort of fruit that we call yeah. an orange yeah. uh, is really kind of a, a cross between a, a large pumelo and a mandarin, which is kind of a smaller, you know, I guess you could also say it's a type of, it's a type of orange, but yeah. kind of getting to orange. So let me, let me kind, kind of, of the define. The larger
1: orange. Well, you right. said it doesn't exist in nature and you've lost me already. And I only have, this is a small cocktail glass. I'm going to have to stop and <laughs> refill if you're well, going to talk... so, Shit
0: like this for the most part. And this is a big rabbit hole You can go way down this rabbit hole for the most part a an orange that you buy at any market Doesn't really exist in the wild. Let's put it that way um, it it uh, it's it's kind of a, a human, uh, you know, kind of like how a a Pomeranian doesn't really exist in the wild. It was a wolf that was selectively bred over time. So you can think of a, of the oranges that we buy as somewhat of a chihuahua. It's it's nature's chihuahua fruit, uh, and that we've very selectively hybridized okay. them.
1: Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! Where's my cocktail? Shaper? Yeah,
0: exactly, exactly right. So now uh, there are over eight hundred varieties of uh, of oranges, uh, and again, this is all human humans doing. But we kind of divide them into two different categories, the sweet oranges and the Latin name, because I know you're on the edge of your seat waiting for a Latin name. Uh, We typically think of the sweet oranges as citrus cyanensis. And then there are the sour oranges, which is uh, which kind of are known as citrus uh, orantium. And that's kind of the Seville orange that you just mentioned a minute ago falls into that citrus orantium sour orange. Uh, So again, I went down this crazy um, Gregor Mendel rabbit hole of genetics in that, I mean, if you think about citrus, that that's that's not just the type of fruit, that's the Latin name, that's the family of of plant. Uh, you've got key limes and limes and lemons and Buddha's hands and grapefruits and kumquats. I mean, it's it's a huge family, and you can crossbreed all of those things together. Uh, you know, you know, there's satsumas and uh, miniolas satsuma. and are
1: we oh, going to yeah. talk about those again, or oh, is yeah. that just the I love only? Them. Are we going to talk no, about no, them no! Again? For
0: sure, that's my favorite. It's the time of year it's right coming now. Coming up too. again, though. Oh yeah, uh, I mean, okay. just in in our conversation when we talk about our favorites, because it is definitely one of my. Oh my god, that's... My favorite
1: At the, my and my supermarket, you know, we're doing this in February, which right. is Satsuma season and they just ran out of them. They weren't there yesterday. No!
0: Well, I just went and got our, our favorite uh, Sumo's. Uh, sumo's are yes. our favorite. Oh my they're gosh. so ugly. I mean, cute ugly, but they're bumpy, and they got that little sort of you know bump on yeah. the top. They're so oh. easy to peel, and uh, God, they are so good. Uh, and so when they when they first come out, they are expensive. I mean, they're like $1.50, fifty two bucks a piece. Yeah,
1: they're $3 a
0: pound. Yeah, yeah that's it's crazy how expensive they are. But uh, as the season kind of wanes, there'll be another wave of them. Don't worry. So your market's going to be flooded with them again towards the end of February. And then they go down to like 89 cents a pound, or at least they do by us, not the Piggly Wiggly. Uh, <laughs> um, I've seen some brown oranges in the Piggly Wiggly back in the day. Mm. Uh, But anyway, yes, I love the the sumo's are our family favorites. Now, oranges are technically a berry, and I always love that. Like when we talk about what is a fruit, what is a berry? I mean, of course, a a, all all berries are fruits, but not all fruits are berries. And again, a, a berry or particularly oranges, the type of berry they are, they're called hesperidiums, meaning that they develop from one flower with one ovary. So if you imagine flower, it gets pollinated, that flower starts to enlarge and it becomes a fruit. Now there's one exception to that because you mentioned navel oranges a second ago, the navel orange is actually a conjoined twin. So that little belly button that you see on the bottom of a navel orange, it's actually a vestigial underdeveloped twin fruit conjoined oh. on the bottom. So when you're oh. digging your finger in that navel, you're actually kind of going into the little vestigial.
1: And that <laughs> was the egg. last time Steve McDonough ate a navel <laughs> orange, right there.
0: Yeah. So uh, so yes, I thought, thought, thought that was a little interesting uh, factoid.
1: Is it, though, or is it just disturbing? I mean, it's, you know, it's science. Are you just going to ruin oranges for the rest of all <laughs> of us? Is, are you just going to destroy oranges no, for us? I love
0: it. I love it. You can name it a cute little name. It's a little, little Stevie on the bottom there. No offense, Steve. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um. So now oranges, uh, you remember back in the way back in the fig episode, we talked about how figs are not, not the fact that they're not really a fruit, they're a flower, but the fact that once you pick a fig, it will not ripen beyond that. Whereas tomatoes, you can pick a tomato Underripe, yeah. set in the windowsill, and it'll develop. Yeah. Oranges are what they call non-climacteric, which means basically they will not ripen beyond the point which they're picked. Now they might get softer over time, but that whatever the sugar content is at the moment you pick that orange, that's it. Mm-hmm. So that's why you want to try to you know get give the sniff test and really kind of maybe scratch the skin to see does it smell nice and bright and, and citrusy. So. um, But their color is not the thing necessarily you're looking for. Now, um, super interesting. We're going to talk about the color orange in a moment. But in tropical climates, most oranges are not orange on the outside. They're green on the outside.
1: I just, you know, I, I don't know if you know this, but I just did a Hawaii episode. Oh yeah, it I, was, I know. It was I, just me. I think it was fan. the most popular episode ever.
0: I, it was a lot of Along rave reviews. Alone. One of my well, favorite. Yeah, everybody
1: was like, "Wow, that's just that's what we were looking for." It was just <laughs> all Steve all the time. But I talked about being in uh, Maui and finding these green oranges, green um, green skins, right? An orange flesh, yeah.
0: Yeah, which which is really cool. So I was uh, while you were off gallivanting in Hawaii, I was down in Nicaragua. And again, 99.9% of the oranges that I saw there were green on the outside, but beautiful orange on the inside. And same when I was in Ecuador. So what that is essentially now, you know what chlorophyll is, if you think back to your uh, great science. Yes. And chlorophyll is what helps the plant sort of convert sunlight into food. Well, a lot of plants also have carotenoids, which carrots, obviously carotenoids. Mm Uh, which is sort of almost like the melanin in our skin. It's a it's a antioxidant that helps protect from the sun. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so when oranges get exposed to cold weather, the chlorophyll in the fruit sort of dies back, exposing or kind of changing the ratio to more carotenoids, which bring out that color. So. In those equatorial warm climates, they never get that little bump of cold. And so they stay green. But in California and Florida, it doesn't have to be frost. It just has to have those, you know, four seasons where it gets a cold period. Uh, that's what kind of tricks the uh, the plant into developing that that orange or color. So it's kind of really? a defense so mechanism
1: are like Ecuadorians um, surprised to see an orange orange.
0: I, I would imagine so. I mean, uh, that's not something you see in the market down there. I mean, but again, once you cut it open, it's it's that yeah. color. But the outside, yeah, it looks, uh, it looks you know, it, to yeah. them, I would imagine it looks a little uh, artificial, but it's not artificial. Huh. It's just a right. different, uh, you know. Okay. So, yeah. All right. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. So now speaking of the, the skin, there are three layers to an orange and that outer skin is called, I love this word. It's F-L-A-V-E-D-O. I don't know if that's Flavido or Flavado, Um, because when I do the how to pronounce, there's that sort of computer voice that says Flavido and I don't yeah. think it's Flavido. I think it's Flavido because it's from based in Spanish, but uh, it's just that thin sort of outer layer. And that's where the essential oils are. So, like, if you get sort of orange scented anything, do you ever do that where you take the orange peel and kind of squeeze it, and you see these little bursts of? Well,
1: yeah, you do that with a cocktail. It's a wonderful thing to do across the surface of a cocktail and get those oils across. Yeah, but it's another very fun thing to uh, toast those oils. So you hold your uh, a lighter up over the cocktail and express the orange um, uh, oil through the Flame, and you get this toasty orange flavor on the top of your cocktail. With well, I,
0: yeah, that's that is very helpful. I love that. Uh, I love that smell when you burst those. And speaking of those sumos, I, being the cool dad that I think I am, was just mm. teaching Heidi how to squeeze that, and then she did it, and it went straight into her eyeballs. Yes, of course, yeah, which uh, then of course she cried, and I felt like a,
1: we all saw that coming,
0: yeah. I, she saw it in 3D. Oh. Um, so yeah, so. Uh, so there's that outer layer. Then that next layer is the albedo, which is that cushy white layer. What we call the pith, right? Uh, which apparently is really healthy for hair and nails. So um, don't discard that. Eat that, even if you don't like it. So it's supposed to be great for you. And then that... do
1: not. What did you yes? just tell everybody to
0: eat the pith, even if the, they don't like it? The pith is to spo- Eat it like a vitamin. You just you just what? you just choke it down oh, because it's do supposed to be great it. for you. <laughs>
1: turning the so, channel is this american life on right it is now Can a spoon I find full, hey
0: listen dr oz said no i'm eat kidding the I'm, not,
1: I'm kidding i'm kidding dr Don't oz didn't say eat anything the i'm telling you to drink gin hans is telling you to eat, eat the bit of an orange of sugar. you tell me who you want to listen to <laughs> i'm like you know what's nice people gin with a little toasty orange hans is like you know what you should do you know the part of the orange you throw away you should eat that
0: eat that science i'm just listen science gonna say. Uh, So then we get to the innermost layer, which is what we all know and love. That's that squishy, bright, bursty stuff. And that's the endocarp. And that's the squishy bit that we know and love uh, about. Rub that
1: under your armpits.
0: Oh, it's good stuff. So now that's the part that we eat, but we also drink. Now, I I thought this was fascinating. How much freaking orange juice. I took a picture of the grocery store yesterday. I'll share it with you. How many different Uh, jugs and varieties of orange juice
1: there are. It's crazy. When all you want is orange juice. Oh, yeah. I don't yeah. need the extra vitamins or the no yeah. pulp or the half yeah. pulp. Yeah. Or, you know, less acidic. Just yeah, what Just have you done some, to it? Squeeze it in orange. orange. Yes.
0: Uh. So, but the water footprint network, which is a uh, it's a conservatory that kind of, you know, shows how much water goes in certain foods and uh, foods. Uh, it takes 13 gallons of water to grow one orange and 45 gallons of water to make one eight ounce glass of orange juice. Yeah. So that's how kind of environmentally not so great it is. I mean, it's delicious and I'm not trying to ruin orange juice for you, but just know that it takes 45 gallons of fresh water to, to grow and extract one glass of orange juice, eight ounce glass.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Yeah. It's a lot of water. So, uh, we have talked about, um, Scurvy. I don't know why scurvy has been sort of like an inside joke for us. Like several times, we have talked about scurvy. I'm always over, ready
1: to talk about scurvy.
0: Scurvy. It's the it's the other white meat. No. So, but scur- scurvy is something that uh, we talked about before because it was such a deadly disease. For it, it, they estimate that it killed over two million sailors between the 16th and 18th centuries, and it was basically a vitamin C deficiency. And of course, oranges were that hero thing. right? that was the thing that actually sort of saved the day. And that's where we really see, um, honestly, before I did this research, I thought of oranges as a central South American Caribbean kind of a fruit. I didn't realize that they were of Asian um, origin. That's where they came from. But it was the population of oranges, of all citrus, really. In those Caribbean islands, uh, and also in Hawaii, it, it, they everywhere that the long distance sail, you know, the, the voyages went, they planted those citrus trees along the way, so that when they stopped, they could restock on oh on citrus. So it's exactly right. So like Johnny Appleseed, right? Although he was you know moonshiner. That's a different episode, but. Um, the idea was wherever he went, there were apples, and in this case, wherever the sailors went, there would be a, uh, yeah. a stockpile of citrus to prevent scurvy. So that's where we really start to see the hybridization happening in different cultures. And we see it, you know, developing from, you know, this particular one type of fruit in, uh, in Europe and Asia now taking over all over the world because of the uh, of scurvy. So scurvy kind of helped broadcast citrus uh, across huh. across the world. So I thought that was kind of easy. It is. So I want to talk about uh, orange as the color, because I always wonder, is a fly called a fly because it flies, uh, or is an orange called an orange because it's orange? Well, in in this case, the fruit is older than the color. So, really? yeah, yeah, which I, I just assumed that they saw this yeah. particularly colored yeah, fruit yeah. and they thought, hey, that's, that's well, orange. That makes sense, yeah. But it's the opposite way around. Now, so... Yeah. Using your imagination, and you being of uh, of British descent, uh, what was the English word for that particular color before there was the word orange? What do you think?
1: Ooh, what what did they call orange before that? Yeah, um, flavado, flavado,
0: flavado. It's as good a guess as any. Actually, it was called yellow red. Which just seems kind of oh. anticlimactic but yeah, that was right? the official name yellow red um green was blue yellow yeah <laughs> So, uh, but so here's, I'm going to go a little etymology because I always, sorry, love... I'm
1: just really proud of myself for pulling the word flavidoe back. Yeah, but that, the... I, with my memory, I'm pretty That's a proud. callback. Anyway, that's, go a, that's callback
0: number one. You know, three callbacks is the, uh, is the key to comedy. So we've got to think of a way to work that in two more times. Um, so I love, again, how, do, how the hell do we come up with these words? Like the word orange is such a weird word. So you, if you speak any Spanish, you know, naranja is the yeah. uh, Spanish word for orange. Well, they believe that that word kind of has some uh, some derivation going all the way back to Dravidian linguistics. Uh, naranja is sort of, they call it narange, uh, N-A-R-A-N-G. Um, and so they think that as the Moors uh, kind of came up through uh, the Middle East and then into Spain or whatever, they took that narong and turned it into naranja. And then, of course, the French call everything apples, right? Because it's like pomme de terre is a potato, yeah, right? It's yeah. the apple of the earth. Yeah. So um, the pomme d'orange, which, which was the apple that that came from narange. So it really was the pomme de narange, like naranja, N-A-R-A-N-G, turned to, to pomme d'orange, which then just turned into orange, right. which you hear my horrible French uh uh, pronunciation there. But essentially, that's sort of the derivation of how, how the word orange came in through through the Middle East, through Spain, through France, and then uh, into English. And the first time it was seen in English writing was in 1512. So again, um, I, I love the fact that anytime you, it, you watch how the fruit itself sort of spread globally, and then the word kind of did the did the same thing. So I I kind of love how that developed together. So um, the other cool thing is, apart from a handful of flowers, that color orange doesn't really exist in nature that often. Now, excluding the giant burning ball of hydrogen in the sky that is our sun take that out of the equation because that's a pretty big uh orange colored thing in nature but talking about just in nature there aren't many insects that are orange there aren't that many flowers that are like literally a handful of flowers that are orange um so prior to the fruit being uh being grown in a climate that had those cold regions because again in, in a tropical climate that fruit wasn't really that color on the outside um so, yeah, I think that's kind of cool that orange is a rare color in, in nature.
1: Well, um, when we moved to Chicago, I painted my house green. We had a cold snap, and it's orange now.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, I bet your neighbors absolutely love that.
1: I actually really like the color orange. I did too. Uh, our uh, Hardy Restaurant. Yeah, is that the one? Yep. Yeah, was it? Hardy. We, um, no, I'm just thinking back to our, our restaurants and which was which. But Hardy um, had a lot of orange in it. I think we had some orange and green walls. There's something really cheery to me about orange, I, I I find that I've got quite a bit of it in my house, too. I really like it.
0: Yeah, me too. It's my, it's my mother, who probably is listening, that has always been her favorite color. And when we lived above the Woodbridge Inn, there were six guest rooms above the restaurant that were our sort of residence there for many years and she got on an orange kick and decided to paint an accent wall this was probably early 80s 82 84 and accent walls were all the rage and so mm-hmm. she de- painted one giant wall had like 20 foot ceilings uh bright orange and that was when you opened my bedroom door that is what i saw and so every morning i was greeted with a shocking wall of 20 foot wall <laughs> of bright orange so a little ptsd there but no i've always liked the color orange as well um so you know Nine tenths of my stupid pun humor deals with the words that sound like other words. I love doing that. I think I got that from my dad. I love doing the whole wordplay thing. And sadly, there are really only two things that actually rhyme with the word orange. And I just Ah, want to mention them because they're not really they're not really great. And I don't know how to work them into anything. But one of them is a mountain in the country of Wales that is Blorange, B-L-O-R-E-N-G-E Blorange. Uh, and then the other one is sporange, which is basically the word orange with an SP in front of it. And that is the botanical structure that creates spores in mushrooms, uh, spores, <laughs> sporange. Uh, so neither of those to me, that is very mm. anticlimactic, but I wanted to share them because I'm you always sorry hear Sorry to the... pop
1: your orange balloon, but yes. I've got a much better one. Oh, what's that? Door hinge.
0: Oh, uh, but then that too or see I was, uh, yeah, okay to door hinge i got it but i mean that's where i listen i'll work with it i'll work door with hinge anything you got
1: really is a really good i believe i saw that uh uh m came up with that they asked him to riff on something or to wrap something out of top of his head and rhymes with orange and he was like yeah screw you bitch i got this orange door hinge you know all kinds well it works i'll take it you didn't have to go to sporange, but you know what it all. Eminem is a professional. I am
0: not a professional. I'm just a Absolutely. hobbyist when it comes to so. uh, what you What you got for us in the there world of oranges? My
1: turn? Okay. So I have very specific and comforting memories with oranges, specifically when I was a kid. I don't know if we talked about this before, but do we talk about Christmas stockings? And every year, our Christmas stocking at the bottom had an orange and some loose nuts, like whole nuts in the yeah. shell. So, growing up in the 70s, my mom had this wooden nut bowl in the living room, and it was filled with the nuts and the shells, the walnuts and the almonds and the filberts, which were my favorite, and this nutcracker. No one ever ate these nuts. Really? No. It was was basically food that you would have to occasionally dust. It was the same (laughs) nuts in this bowl under the coffee table my entire life. I don't ever remember her buying them. Although occasionally, you know, truthfully, I would eat a filbert because I did enjoy those. Anyway, each year you'd know you'd go through all the gifts in the stocking, and by the way, putting a stocking on your kid's bed in overnight is a brilliant idea because it keeps your kid busy for a little while longer and lets you sleep later. Uh, so that no, was, that no. was part of it. You'd wake up and you'd feel that weight by your feet and see that Santa had come in and left a yes. stocking at the foot of your bed. It was really great, but you'd always know that you had gone through the gifts when you mind your way down to the orange and the nuts. Those same dusty nuts, <laughs> which is another one of my drag names. Anyway, we, we were at that point, you know, when we wouldn't even pretend, you know, we would just go downstairs with our stocking and turn it upside down and pour those nuts back into this wooden bowl and the orange would go back in the kitchen counter. And so I was a thing, I thought that this was a thing that, you know, we just did in our house, you know, money was tight for us growing up. And I, you know, you put an orange in the bottom of a stocking, it takes up some good real estate. Oh, yeah, some heft there. Yeah. 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 Fills it up. Uh, I thought it was like, you know, the Christmas equivalent of stretching your hamburger meat with breadcrumbs, you know. (laughs) But once again, it turns out it is actually one of those English traditions, been done for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, I found this really fun article from the 20s from a trade magazine for the citrus industry, and they were calling for a Christmas orange for the toe of every Christmas stocking, and that it is a wise Santa Claus who gives this fruit to his small believers rather than filling their stockings with cheap, artificially colored, and oftentimes injurious candy. Hmm. Dangerous, (laughs) injurious candy. So what are the roots? So you didn't grow up with a, an orange in your stocking, huh? Well, so we
0: had pomanders, you know, where people would take an orange and put cloves uh, kind yeah, of yeah, studded yeah, in there and, yeah. and we would have those. But we did have the nut bowl, which my father, he ate those ev- like every year he ate those things. So we ate those in our and he also could crack two of them together. He had the strongest hands. Oh. He could take two nuts in one hand and just crack them, crack them together you know, using yeah. each other. Um, so we were the household. There, no dust gathered on those, on those nuts. But did, we, did we you get them. the
1: orange in your stocking? Though?
0: Uh, well, we usually had one orange. Yes. And again, that's what I mentioned oh, the you heft. Did. You did have I, one in your yeah, stocking. Yeah. And I, and I always felt like, woo, got a bunch. And then it really was, that was the thing that was weighing the whole thing down. But I, yeah. I love a good orange. So yeah, we did again. Well,
1: them. so the best theory is that St. Nicholas, before, you know, he became a bishop and before he was known as Santa Claus, he was just a rich guy named Nicholas. So the story is that he lived near this father who had three daughters, who ha- and they had all fallen on hard times, and the daughters were about to be sold into slavery because they had no dowry. So St. Nicholas, or Nicholas at the time, he secretly climbed up to the window, and he threw three bags of gold through their window, which very conveniently landed in the stockings that the wow. girls had hung on the mantle to dry by the fire. And the tale is known as the miracle of the dowries. And apparently, we now put oranges in the Christmas stocking because they represent the bags of gold. Ah. Yeah. Um, And anyway, that's all I have to say about the Christmas stocking, other than the filbert is an underrated nut.
0: Oh, it is for sure. And when you go to, as you know, when you go across the pond into Europe, they eat hazelnuts and everything, and they should. It is so Mm. damn good. We don't eat enough Mm. hazelnuts here.
1: It is true. So I was thinking about... um, How many oranges we used to eat, you know, because at that time, it was such a gift to get an orange. They were very rare. Uh, Americans now eat nearly 15 pounds of fresh oranges a year. That's about 90 oranges. Wow. And we consume about 72 additional pounds of oranges in a juice form. But in 1885, the average American only ate eight oranges a year. Wow. So now keep this in mind, because I'm going to come and revisit this in a little while. Uh, In 1914, the average American was up to 40 oranges, but two years later in 1916, it jumps to about 200 oranges. Damn. Now, how did that happen? What happened between 1914 and 1916 that oranges took over American uh, palates? So in 1905, California orange growers, they organized into a large cooperative called the California Fruit Growers Exchange, the CFGE. So basically, you know, they were teaming up so that together they could bargain for higher prices instead of competing against each other and lowering their prices against each other, right? So the co-op was such a success that they ended up overplanting new groves and the yield was coming to fruition and they were about to have way too many oranges. So they had to make a decision. They either had to cut down the supply before they bankrupted themselves or they needed to find a way to push up the demand to save themselves. So smartly, they chose option two, push up demand. So the co-op president met with the president of the Southern Pacific Railway. And he said, we should work together. For every dollar that we put into the the, uh, co-op, puts into advertising, how about if the Southern Pacific Railway matches that for a dollar, and then when we sell oranges, Southern Pacific Railway ships them all over the country. So they agreed with that. And they were working with an ad agency named Lord and Thomas. In 1907, a copywriter came up with the idea to take all of the fruit that's grown by the members of this co-op and brand them under one single name. Makes sense, right? And they called it Sunkissed, kissed like in the verb, K-I-S-S-E-D. Uh, but really quickly, they had to change the spelling to make it easier to trademark, and that's where "Sun Kissed," as we know it, got it came about. So I thought that was interesting because I mean, I just always thought it was a brand, but it's yes. not. It came out of all of the citrus growers together. Wow! So, and they were working really hard to have a terrific product that would be different from like cheap oranges that were around, right? In the beginning of the 20th century, it's time for a quiz. Oh, good. Yeah? Okay, here we go. In the beginning of the 1920s, the California Fruit Growers Exchange was America's largest buyer of what? Okay, it's a confusing question. Beginning of the 20th century, the California Fruit Growers Exchange was America's largest buyer of, A, spoons? Largest buyer of neckties? Largest buyer of orange dye? Or America's largest buyer of pruning shears?
0: I'm going to go with pruning shears. Spoons.
1: Spoons. Spoons. Wow. So, spoons. I was, I, I, story, story cracks me up. So it's early in the 20th century, 1908, the co op orders six million sun-kissed orange stickers to put on their oranges to differentiate them. And shopkeepers are removing the sun-kissed stickers so that they could also mix in the low-quality oranges for the sun-kissed prices. So it's harming the sun-kissed reputation that they're working on. So they think, okay, what we're going to do now is we're going to wrap each individual orange with paper, in paper, you know, with a sun-kissed yeah. logo. So the shopkeepers are unwrapping all of the papers, throwing them away and continuing it. So Lord & Thomas, this advertising agency I'm talking about, they thought of a new ad campaign. If you send in 12 of the sun-kissed wrappers and 12 cents, we'll send you a free sun-kissed orange spoon. Nice. So then buyers would go in and they're like, where the hell are the wrappers? Wow. So they, I, I, it was so smart. And they're actually pretty spoons. They've got like these oranges on the end and leaves on the handle. They're made of silver plate. And they're really easy to find on eBay and they're not expensive. So it works so well. The co-op were sending out a million spoons a year and became the largest buyer of spoons in America. That's, that's awesome. I so, have to okay. check those out. I like were they like is the smaller like, spoons, like the little yeah, yeah, they're guys? like teaspoons.
0: I love them. I will have to go check it out. But here's the
1: thing: like, are they just are they just teaspoons for teaspoons' sake? No, because there is such a thing as an orange spoon. So, when oranges were considered you know, a rarity during the golden age. Remember when I said, remember around 1885 when we were only eating about eight oranges a year? There were specific serving pieces for the evasive orange. So if you were having one during the course of a, a luncheon, you would get half of an orange in like kind of this tilted silver dish. So it'd be a little round dish, like a, uh, upside down satellite dish, you know, Got it. but it was kind of tilted. So when you put half an orange in there, it was kind of facing you. Right. And it had spikes in the bottom to hold the orange in place. Cool. And so you would eat this with silver spoons that kind of tapered at the end to help you get to all of the orange segments. And that was an orange spoon. So was it, was it serrated like a grapefruit spoon at all or no? Good question, Hans Rufert later when oranges became more prevalent and grapefruits took their place during the lunches grapefruits have thicker membranes and that's why they came up with serrated grapefruit spoons ah,
0: those always hurt my mouth i was i never uh <laughs> i remember like this is such a cool thing and then i would eat them and i think why does my mouth hurt on the side because the serration yeah, was wait terrible. till
1: you learn about knives oh <laughs> i've got i've got bad news for you yeah okay Okay, so eating oranges is nothing new, right? But drinking orange juice was something that they weren't really doing. They weren't drinking the juice. They were just eating them. Well, of course they were. If half an orange is such a big deal, you're not going to have a glass of juice, right? Right. And you certainly didn't do it at home. So in 1914, there's a guy named Don Francisco, and he's hired as a fruit inspector for the CFGE. And he began doing research on orange sales. And one of the things he learned is that the soda fountain attendants, that's a kind of place where you could get, you know, orange juice at the malt shop, soda fountain attendant. They hated making fresh orange juice because it was too messy, it was too time consuming. So they didn't try to raise the sales. So to combat this, they began an ad campaign called Drink an Orange. And uh, this guy, Francisco, helped to develop three things. One, a heavy duty electric juicer for so- those soda fountain counters that made it easy to sell orange juice, a smaller electric juicer for home use, which was unheard of, and a simple glass juicer for home use. You know, like a, yeah. w- w- what do you call those? I know what Lim- you mean. They, Reamers. they have like,
0: yeah, they're little, exactly right, The Reamer. They have a, a little Reamer, dome yeah. kind of thing. You squish them on there.
1: Yeah, and so Sunkist contracted with a glass company to make, you know, these glass juicers that are labeled Sunkist, They sold them for 10 cents each so that people could make their own juice at home. They sold 3 million of them. And that's how we ended up drinking orange juice. And it made such a difference. Wow. So in the 1920s, speaking of orange juice... There was one guy trying to sell orange juice in a freshly squeezed uh, orange juice stall in downtown LA, whose name was Julius Freed. Ah, what product Julius. do you think Julius created with his oranges? Hans referred the old
0: orange Julio, orange Julius. Man, I orange loved Julius. An orange Julius back in the back in the mall days.
1: Yes, can you tell people what it is for those? So yeah, I mean
0: it's kind of like a uh, if you've had a uh, let me think of a good current analogy if you've had a frappuccino this is like the Mm. the orange version and that there's little crystals of ice in there I would always drink the orange Julius too fast so it's basically a blended. Um with like a yeah. powdered uh, Yes. I'll powdered talk about that. It something. Absolutely
1: was. Yes, so, yes, powdered
0: but, milk. Yes. But there was little tiny ice crystals in there, and I would want to drink the orange Julius before those ice crystals melted. So I always found myself drinking an orange Julius way too fast, but so satisfying.
1: Really good. Yeah. Well, people attribute the orange Julius to Julius, but it actually wasn't him. It was his realtor. And you know, as soon as I read, I'm doing research. And as soon as I read something that says it was actually his realtor, I'm like, I am all in on this story. (laughs) You know, I am. (laughs) I'm like, I am there. I'm going to talk about the realtor. So his realtor, a guy named Bill Hamlin had a sensitive stomach. So orange juice was too acidic to him. And he developed a powdered vanilla flavored formula that you would add to O.J. with simple syrup and ice to make this airy creamsicle-like yeah. drink. Love it. And he partnered with Julius Fried before he bought him out and then began opening these freestanding drive-ins. In Okay, I'm going to go off topic, but this just interests me. In The, the drive-ins that he made were in the architectural style known as Googie style. Googie? Yeah. <laughs> that didn't yeah.
0: sound appetizing at all.
1: Well, don't feel bad because I also have never heard of Googie style, but you do know what it is. And so do you, dear listener. So the phrase originates from the design of a place called Googie's Coffee Shop in L.A. uh, It's kind of futuristic architecture influenced by the space age. So Home and House magazine coined the phrase. um, And I think that the article that that I read really describes it well, and it'll help you picture it. So they said... The building, talking about Googie's, um, uh, what the hell am I saying? Googie's Coffee Shop. The building starts off on the level like any other building, but suddenly it breaks for the sky. The bright red roof of cellular steel decking suddenly tilts upwards as if swung on a hinge. And the whole building goes up with it like a rocket ramp. Got it. I can see it. Yeah. So this became the that kind of Googie themed architecture is popular with roadside attractions and motels, you know, mid-century stuff. Very fun stuff. Very Jetsons. So I was saying it refers to Googie's Coffee Shop, which was connected to Schwab's Pharmacy on the Sunset Swi- Strip. Okay. You don't know Schwab's? I don't think so. You don't know Schwab's Pharmacy? In addition to being a pharmacy, Schwab's had a lunch counter which catered to the movie industry and they had malts and sodas. Uh, Oh God, it was so famous. Uh, Regulars would take their meetings there and Clark Gable went there, Mickey Rooney and Judy Garland, the Marx brothers. Um, uh, Marilyn Monroe had her prescriptions filled there and uh, Harold Arland, who wrote the music to uh, the wizard of Oz, apparently supposedly he wrote the lyrics to somewhere over the rainbow on a Schwab's cocktail. Oh, nice. F Scott Fitzgerald had a heart attack there. (laughs) And the entire building was recreated for a film that is the subject of today's uh-huh. stop. The strikeout!
0: Oh man, I got a, I got away with one last week, and then I uh, since you were solo, Steve Solo, oh, um, I wasn't yeah. expecting
1: to do that last week, and then I went and, and quoted a Broadway <laughs> musical, which, by the way, was *Dames at Sea*. That I wasn't expecting; it just came out of my mouth, and then I was just in it. Yep, it was you were in accidental. Okay. In this Billy Wilder 1950s movie, a noir classic, an exact replica of the Schwab's pharmacy was created on the Paramount Studios' backlot. In the film, screenwriter Joe Gillis, played by William Holden, finds himself down on his luck after being rejected by Paramount, and he explains, Schwab's was kind of a combination office, coffee clutch, and waiting room. Waiting, waiting, waiting for the gravy train. And the film is... I have
0: absolutely no Joe idea. Joe
1: Gillis ends up working for Norma Desmond. No, you, you could you could tell me another clue, but I. Oh I, my god! I, I just no said idea. the word Norm, Norma Desmond, and you like no. laughed and turned your head and made the no sign with your hand. I have no Are idea. Are you serious? I don't know who Norma Desmond if is. If I had just started and said what movie was about Norma Desmond, you would still not know? No.
0: I don't know who Norma Desmond is.
1: I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. It, oh, well,
0: hmm. is that Zigfeed Frick, Zigfrey? No, I don't yes, know what it is. Yes, <laughs> it's, it's uh, Zigfeed Furshoes. The Follies. The, the one pr- with the Follies is what I was trying to say, no, that's not. Orange Freakles. Yes, Orange Flavidae, Flavidae,
1: Flavidos. Stop it. Oh, my God. I don't know I
0: anything. I special quit needs. the show.
1: I quit. All right. People,
0: <laughs> I know somebody throw me, somebody help me.
1: Somebody, everybody knows this, and you can go to our Facebook page and tell Hans you know this movie. Everybody knows this movie. This was an easy one. Oh my god, never just I'm just oh, I have to keep going on. I just can't believe Norman Desmond. <laughs> Who's Norman Desmond? What? What? I'm embarrassed. People have is listen, do I need to call anybody for any of you that just drove into a ditch during that? Do, did, do any of you need help? Oh, send me an invoice. It's
0: my fault. I'm sorry. All
1: right. Anyway, I'll, I'm going to finish up about Orange Julius. I, my, <laughs> my soul is destroyed. Um, So those stands that they opened slowly cl- closed and gave way to stores and shopping malls. And then Dairy Queen bought them. And what was great about the Orange Julius originally was that you would watch them make the fresh oranges, you know, the, oh. the, the juice. They'd squeeze them and add the powders and now DQ uses, it doesn't do it like that. So they're really not the same, but I did find a woman who has this really fun, easy home hack because an original orange Julius calls for orange juice, ice and simple syrup. And then for like egg white powder, vanilla powder, milk powder. And if you think about those ingredients, possibly vanilla pudding mix.
0: Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. so I was reading somebody who said it was really pretty great. It's Fresh also, orange juice, that. vanilla ice, uh, vanilla pudding mix, ice in a Vitamix because you really want to try to get those those ice crystals down yeah. as low as you can. Love it. All right. So, I told you that I was going to end this by talking about the battle of the oranges. Okay. You and you do hear you did read about this, right?
0: I did. Yeah, that's uh, some something Dutchy happening with the oranges.
1: Yeah, no, that's not right. Anyway, it 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 is it is from another country, but it's it's not Netherlands or Dutch. Oh. So you know, I love a local food festival, and so this one is going to be the price of today's admission, and plus it'll give you something to listen to while you're pulling your car out of the <laughs> ditch. Who's Norma Desmond? Who's Norma Desmond? I don't oh. know who Norma Desmond is. Oh my. I'm anyway, blushing. I'm
0: literally blushing because uh, I'm feeling embarrassed.
1: Battle, Max. Whatever. So, the, my monkey's dead. The Battle of the Oranges is a world. Oh my god! The Battle of the Oranges—it's a world-famous food fight—takes place in a small town in northeastern Italy near Turin called Ivrea. Uh, so, it's a three-day carnival leading up to the Sunday before Lent, or more specifically, this year. February 27th to March 1st, if we can get to Avrea. Oh, let's go. Road trip. Yes. Um. So the origins, origins are, the oranges are Orange. murky. <laughs> that's pretty good. Nice close. But all of the stories, they basically boil down to, you know, this form. So around the year 1200, this medieval town was ruled by the Marquis of uh, Monferrato. And he passed a law claiming that he had the right to sleep with all of the brides of Evrea on their wedding night. So legend has it that the miller's daughter, Munyea, was not having it. So she hid a knife under her wedding dress, and when he came to her, she cut off his head. Wow. Thus freeing Evrea from tyranny. So this is remembered now with a yearly carnival. Uh, which is a celebration of Avarian people's liberation and their whole attitude against tyranny, you know, as a whole. So it starts with a parade queen, and it's usually a young woman, well, always a young woman, picked to play Munyea, and she gets to ride through the parade in this golden carriage with cherubs, and she tosses flowers to the crowd, and then things get ugly. This is how it works. The uh, town—hold on, let me see if I can remember how many people— it's a town of 23,000 people, right? Not a big place. 100,000 spectators turn up for this. Wow. So the town is split into two sides of nine teams because there's nine neighborhoods in the town. So you have the Yavreyan people who are on foot and, and each team is wearing like matching sweatshirts or some sort of you know color-coded team apparel. And then there is the emperor's tyrannical forces who are riding through... In these tight streets in horse-drawn carriages, okay. okay? So you're either a team on foot or you're uh, one of the emperor's people in a carriage. Now, if you want to be a spectator, you wear a beret frigio, which is uh, a red hat. So it's one of those stocking caps, like those long caps that you kind of like fold over and you Got pin it. it on one side. And that signals that you are not participating, that you are spectating and do not peg me in the eyeball with an orange. <laughs> wow. So you get to stand behind nets on these tiny little streets and watch as the battle goes on. So the wagons, after Manya goes through, the wagons start going through the streets and the people on the ground assault them. They're hurling as hard as they can. Wow. Oranges at these guys in the carriage and the guys in the carriage are the ones who are really taking a beating. So at least they're wearing protective clothing and like helmets and stuff. But they're just pegging the other people in the street these are just and these people are not wearing protective gear and they're just getting yeah i don't, it, I don't even know what the word is
0: it's like oranges. dodgeball it's like dodgeball with fruit With oranges yeah with oranges and uh we were just talked about the heft of an orange in a christmas stocking yeah. that's it i cannot imagine getting pegged with an
1: orange for three and a half hours <laughs> they say the carts are relentless it's brutal, and it looks painful as hell. And when they're done, and, and they do this over three days, so the orange pulp is, I'm not kidding, and I think I'm going low-end when I tell you that at the end of the day, it's four inches deep Wow! of oranges. The streets are oranges. So you have to wear, you have to, you, you know, you can't wear flip-flops. <laughs> right? Good
0: advice, good advice.
1: They go through 250 tons of oranges about 4 4 million oranges. Yeah,
0: I imagine that does a pretty good job of like cleaning the streets. You got that sort of acidic acid uh, happening there, you know, <laughs> just uh, citric acid. And it, must Dude, smell wonderful. it, it smells wonderful. It smells wonderful,
1: smell yeah. great. I it's I've never seen anything like it and I will definitely put a link to a video. You know it sucks when I have to put a Facebook link up cuz you know yeah, I have to tell gets, you here's a link and it's in yeah, the comments. Here's a link. Yeah, You does, should watch it. It's it does suck.
0: I'm going to check it out for sure. And I have to think that there, um, are there any inspired, like uh, you, you mentioned this festival, are there food things surrounding that too? Or it's just, you're just oh, pummeling man, this stuff. Oh man, there
1: are, there are. Uh, I don't want to go over, but do you want to know what they eat? Oh, I'm excited, Bob. of course I want to know. Okay. So one of the, one of their foods for this, I want to talk about too. They eat fat beans, F-A-T beans. Okay. Know, beans. So they're, Borlotti beans, which are not unlike uh, pinto beans. Okay. And you would get them in the stalls during carnival. Or uh, f- uh, fagioli uh, grassi. Okay. Like pasta fagioli. Pasta right. with uh, beans. Fagioli grassi. So they make them in large cauldrons. It is a, a rich uh, dish of beans and pork and bacon rind and mm. sausage and pig's feet and pig bones and lard. And onions, so they're called fat beans because of the ingredients. You know all that, all that pork and the skin and everything. But it's not for the faint of heart. So they take the, um, they make the beans and the onions, and then they take the piece of pork belly. You, 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 had me at pork belly. Oh yeah. And then you flatten them out and you fill them or sprinkle them with rosemary needles, and then you roll them up almost like little mini brajol. Wow! And you simmer those together so you have these beans and these little round pieces of rolled up pork belly.
0: Yeah, that sounds
1: pretty good. Oh my God, does it not? And then my favorite of the desserts, uh, the dolci, they're famous for fried, ma- mainly fried dough in sugar, which, you know, uh, Italians do so much of that with the zeppole and things like that. But these, the ones that I saw that I've never seen before, are a uh, Chacheri. I'm probably saying that wrong. Chacheri, chicherry. But it's probably, it looks like chicherry. So it's fried dough in different shapes. But the one that I thought was coolest was they roll the dough very thin and then cut it into strips. And then each strip is cut into kind of a rectangle, not a big rectangle, you know, like, I don't know, the size of two fingers or something, right? And then in that rectangle with a fluted pastry, knife, right, pastry wheel, fluted pastry wheel, Okay. you cut two slits in the center, and then you take that rectangle and you fold the ends into the fluted strips and then drop them in the fat and then just dust them with powdered sugar.
0: That sounds awesome.
1: And now you've driven off the road again.
0: Yeah. And you're uh, in another ditch. You brought cocktails. We didn't bring snacks. We need snacks with our cocktail. That sounds awesome.
1: Oh, my God. Oh, my God. The Oh, the pictures, I was like, oh. Anyway, so now we're on recipes, and I just told you something delicious. and oh. God, what's your recipe? We're ready for recipes. The
0: only thing that's hotter than the oven is watching you cook. So there's so many options with oranges, and there's no right or wrong way but I love a good table side dessert. I love doing bananas foster, I love doing Cherries Jubilee, mm. and I love doing Crepe Suzette. And anytime I can catch something on fire, maybe it's my inner pyro, uh, but I love not just the not just the act of catching something on fire tableside, but the build-up, the stories, yeah. you have everybody's attention and the nobody does that anymore. And God, I love doing it. And as a kid, my dad was so masterful at it that I thought there's no way I could – Now I could do it. I could I could go through the motions, but my 13-year-old self, when it was my turn to go flame, I couldn't hold the audience. And it was yeah. so time-stretched on for eons while I was trying to think of something witty to say, and now you can't shut me up because I absolutely love doing these table-side desserts. So I'm going to talk about Crepe Suzette, which uses um, – uh oranges and oftentimes orange marmalade which can be made from i had to cut
1: orange marmalade oh i know that's i could have talked about oh yeah maybe we'll do a marmalade episode
0: we could do a marmalade episode for sure and so orange marmalade is usually made with those kind of more bitter sour oranges but then you add the sugar back into there and to me an orange marmalade is is one of those perfection foods i love it
1: Um, i'm so hungry
0: yeah, I love it. So, doing the crepes Suzette, which um, there's a million crepes. Rep, rep, I can't even say that there are a million crepes recipes, uh, and of course, I'll share one with you. But I, I thought the history of the crepes Suzette was kind of interesting. So, um, all great culinary things uh, start with an accident or a kind of a oops. And apparently this is no uh, exception. So the legend has it that in 1895 in Monaco, uh, the then Prince of Wales and future uh, Edward the King Seventh of England, the uh, King Edward the Seventh of England, uh, was having dinner at the Café de Paris of Monte Carlo with some friends and other nobles. I'm saying it in air quotes. Uh, and uh, at the time, this young assistant waiter named uh Henry or Henri uh sharpentier or it looks like carpenter with an H in there. Um he was making crepes or gramonnier, which was mm, basically, yeah. you know, crepes and, and uh, crepes and gramonnier. And he accidentally spilled some of that and the the little burner that was warming the crepes or whatever it caught fire. Yeah. And he apparently just acted like this is what I oh I meant to do that. Uh which is which is pretty awesome. And it kind of created this perfect amount of kind of caramelization, and it made a little whoop, and it uh, and everybody was so impressed with him. It was sort of sweet and sour, and again, it had that oh, little little flair. And uh, so, when the prince asked uh, Henry, Henri, what was the name, he just off the top of his head said, "It's Crep Princess or Princesa." Uh, but at that time, the uh, future king Edward VII said, uh, "No, let's call it." suzette in honor of a young french noble lady a little dame who was sitting there at the table really? he looked across the table and said no let's name it after suzette so it was a big happy accident um and i just love that uh, whether that's true or not i don't know that's a legend but i like that uh but moreover it's a stupid simple dessert to make i mean you could crepes are basically thin pancakes you can make them ahead of time and you're just kind of warming them up in the pan catching the whole thing on fire uh and you can impress your friends amuse your enemies uh, but more importantly, you get to eat them, too, uh, and it gives you a nice little showcase to, uh, to, to do your, your favorite uh, orange, all your little orange factoids that you just learned on this episode. You can uh, repeat them as you're catching orange marmalade and, and uh, graminier on fire.
1: Yeah, that reminds me. Of, made me think of a scoffier naming desserts after Dame uh, Nellie Melba. That's right, the, but not after his wife. Do you remember her name? <laughs> I can't remember her name. Delphine Delphine. But I remember
0: That's Delphine. That's
1: Delphine. Yeah, she remember was uh, Delphine. Same name. Yep, yeah,
0: second fiddle there. Unfortunately. Oh,
1: so speaking of funny names, um, I'm going to talk about a Harvey Wallbanger. Oh. Actually, are you a fan of uh of um of uh the honeymooners?
0: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: Because there's one one of the honeymooners where uh, Ralph is playing, playing a pool with somebody, and he he's trying to take, I think, try, take the pool table for somebody, and the, the little guy says, you're going to be upset when my friend Harvey gets here. He says, Harvey is a funny name. I don't remember that. Hey, Harvey, this fella says Harvey is a funny name. No? Right. <laughs> Harvey is a funny name. Ah, <laughs> uh, Jackie Gleason. Anyway, so Harvey Wallbanger... Um, it sounds so much more uh, mysterious and difficult than it actually is. A Harvey Wallbanger is only a screwdriver with Galliano.
0: Oh, I love Galliano. That's all it is. Yeah, I love the oh, bottle Galeano. of Galliano. What a pretty uh, presentation mm-hmm. that is.
1: Yep, Galliano. For you, for those who don't know, it's a sweet herbal liqueur. It's uh, it's golden yellow and it's in that slender tapered bottle that Hans was just miming with his hands and it tastes of uh, vanilla and herbs and anise. uh, And you just need just a little to transform a cocktail. So really, if you're making a uh, Harvey Wallbanger, it's just a screwdriver, vodka, orange juice with a float of like um, half an ounce of Galliano over it. And it's, uh, oh, it's, it's, it's the kind of drink that I ignored, of course, forever, because it's in the seventies and those silly names and those terrible drinks i I ignored but then when i finally had one it's a great brunch drink nice
0: it, it's I, I really
1: i i really enjoy a, a harvey wallbanger believe it or not
0: i don't think i've ever had one i will have to try it can i can i share a screwdriver story that i told my wife i wouldn't share uh oh, because it involves yes. her and she's going to be embarrassed if she listens so we went uh, to oaxaca mexico in 1997 for our honeymoon and we stayed at this old uh convent um uh, kind of a place that had been, re- been converted into a resort. And it was so fantastic. And again, we just got married. We're in this euphoria of our honeymoon. And every night by the pool under the bougainvillea blooms, she ordered a screwdriver and our waiter was so nice and he brought it to us. And by the second night, he just brought it automatically for her. I would have a beer, she would have her screwdriver. Well, and she kept saying, this is the best. It was fresh squeezed orange juice. She goes, this is the most amazing screwdriver. I I can't even taste the vodka. It is so good. So we were there for probably eight days. And so when we were settling up at the end, we had every night, a on our bill, an orange juice, an orange juice, an orange juice, an orange juice, and so basically the entire time, Amy was having a fresh orange juice, and the waiter <laughs> was so proud to bring her an orange juice, but had no idea what a screwdriver was.
1: Oh, so, uh, Amy, uh, I'll make you a Harvey Wallbanger. He says Harvey is a funny name. She'll <laughs> enjoy that. Oh, that sounds great. So as always, if you want these recipes, mine is super easy. Uh, Hans's sounds much more interesting, but it's at our website, but I Um If you'd like to email us, uh, like if you want to email something like, how can you even hang out with somebody who's never heard of Norma Desmond? <laughs> hey, I want you to do me a favor, though. Fave-a-dough? Oh, <laughs> I mean, why you to give me a Call back. Yeah, I just wanted to get it three times. Uh, and, uh, you can email us at butidigestpodcast at gmail which I need to check. I haven't been good at checking it. I will. I will. I'll get better. Um, and then go to our Facebook, uh, But I Digest Podcast, and Instagram is But I Digest Podcast. Come on there and tell us what the name of Norma Desmond movie. I'm just not over it. And Twitter <laughs> at But I Digest Pod. Also on our website, you will find a link to Hans's Lines of Spices. As well as a link to download my cocktail book, *The New Old Bar*, which includes your Harvey Wallbanger. Harvey Wallbanger. Special thanks, as always, to our web designer Hewitt Rabel, to our editor Natalie Dechico. Special music by Corey Goodrich, and our theme music is by Brian Reyes. That's an awkward pause. Yeah, was- <laughs> well, you might want to say something. I, I, I was still emotion. Right-
0: yeah, sorry. No, they. I have. I have nothing to say other than Norma. Uh...
1: Do you have anything to say, Norma? Nor, I don't know who Norma is. I We're done here. <laughs> are we done? We are I done. Even, I don't even want your answer. <laughs>